listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to neuroscientist and co-founder of Apollo Neuro, Dr. Dave Rabin. Could we use what we know about technology and the way the nervous system functions to deliver a safety signal to the brain through a wearable that's similar to what people would get from soothing touch or breathing that reminds the brain that we're safe and that you're not in a stressful situation? Dave shared his insights into how we can hack our biology to cope with the demands of modern life, the importance of heart rate variability in managing our stress response, and the role biofeedback will play in the design of the next generation of wearable devices. Dave, your main interest is in how the human brain copes with the demands of modern life. And specifically, your work looks at ways to combat stress. But how did stress become such a dominant problem in society at large? That's a, that's a big question. And thank <laughs> you so much for having me to talk about this important topic. I mean, I think that a big part of it is that we just have a lot of responsibility right now. And on top of the responsibilities that we all have, we also have a lot of incoming stimuli from the environment that we didn't necessarily have in the past. So things like mobile technology, for instance, and the ubiquity of TVs and screens and how common they are in our society now is is really unprecedented. We've never been surrounded by so much media. You know, before it used to be you wrap up work at a certain time and then you're done and you go home and you spend time with your family, you exercise or you do your own stuff. And then you go back the next day and you're back at it, but you have these very specific boundaries around when you're doing what thing. Mm-hmm. And with mobile technology, it's not really like that anymore, right? We we have our phones on all the time. We can be pinged at any time. It's very difficult to turn off messages from one group versus another. And we leave the office and we're still might be getting hit up with emails or messages, etc. And then you go home, the news is on, yeah. you're in the car, the news is on, right? People are talking about all this wild, crazy stuff going on in the world. And we end up focusing on a lot of things we don't have control over with a lot of our time. And I think that's a huge source from a psychological perspective of why stress mm-hmm. and burnout which is the long-term consequences of stress, might be so much more of an issue now than we faced in the past. It certainly does feel like we're we're suffering the tyranny of our shiny, glowing rectangles. But from a scientific perspective, what is stress? We all know when we feel stressed, but psychosomatically and, and in the brain and the body, what is stress and what impact does it really have? So stress is commonly talked about as just one thing, but it turns out that stress is actually lots of different things, but for the most part, two major things. And one of which that we can break it down to to make it a little simpler is what we call U-stress or EU-stress. U-stress is stress that is what we might think of as balancing stress or good stress. It's stress that might force us to grow and become stronger as people. That's very obvious to us. Mm -hmm. Overcoming a fitness challenge or overcoming a any kind of challenging experience in our lives that pushes us to obviously perform at a higher level is what we would call eustress. And that stress is required for us to grow and become stronger. And this is absolutely critical to our human growth trajectory and really making the most out of our lives. And on the other hand, there's distress, which ultimately is stress that causes discomfort and eventually over time causes disease if it's not addressed. And so these activate the nervous system in different ways. And if we look back evolutionarily, really going back like hundreds of millions of years ago into ancient animals, what we know is that 
there are certain kinds of stress that are critical mm -hmm. for us to respond to biologically for survival. And those stressors are predators, anything that could hurt us or our family or our community, lack of water, lack of food, lack of air, oxygen, lack of shelter, right? These are the kinds of things that we have evolved to set off our stress response system, which we call the sympathetic nervous system, to take over our current situation and divert all available resources, blood, oxygen, energy, etc., to our motor cortex of our brains, our fear center of our brains, our heart, our lungs, our skeletal muscles, to literally focus on fight, flight, or freeze responses. Yeah. In the moment, that's fine because that's getting us to a point of survival. But over time, when we don't just have the old stressors around like predators and uh, lack of food, water, shelter, air, etc., then what happens is our bodies start to attribute threat or fear responses to things that are not actually survival threats. So too many emails, hmm. too many children screaming, too many responsibilities, too much news, too much COVID, any of those things could set us off. Even somebody looking at us funny across the room at a meeting. Hmm. And we don't want that to set us off. But what happens is when it sets us off all the time, and the more stressed out we are, the more likely we are to get set off by it, then what happens is all of these resources keep getting diverted to the heart, the lungs, the skeletal muscles, and our bodies in like a survival mode all the time, which effectively is taking resources constantly away from everything our bodies need to recover. So our reproductive system, our digestive system, our immune system, our creativity system, our emotional nervous system, which is responsible for empathy and building relationships with others. All of these things get deprioritized. Mm. That's kind of the basic biology of how the stress nervous system works. And we can retrain that nervous system to be more balanced, to favor recovery as much as we favor performance by doing techniques that remind us that we're safe like breath work, meditation, mindfulness, etc. Well, that's the wonderful thing about your work. It shows us that there's a multitude of things that we can do to build resilience against stress. And one of those things is to activate our parasympathetic nervous system. So why is it often difficult for us to find opportunities to do that? And in what way has it been particularly bad during this period of COVID? That's a great question. I think that most of the ways that we as human beings balance our stress response system mm -hmm. is by parasympathetic activation because the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for recovery and it's responsible for turning on to signal energy that can be diverted to recovery states when we're no longer in a, under threat. And the most common ways that we used to, and this is one of the things that exemplified by COVID and isolation is one of the most common ways that we activate the parasympathetic nervous system to facilitate recovery is with soothing gentle touch from a friend, a family member, a loved one, or empathic contact, right? So having an eye-to-eye -eye experience with anyone, it could be someone on the street, like a stranger you don't know. It could just be somebody in the market where you're picking up your food, or it could be a friend or a loved one or a family member or a pet even. And because of COVID and the nature of the isolation that we've all had to face for public health, unfortunately, we've lost a lot of those safe inputs so the empathy factors down because you're not seeing people's faces as much. You're, everyone's wearing masks. We're not as trained easily to interpret eye contact and crinkling around the eyes to signal happiness versus sadness or anger the way we are when we have the mouth involved too. So that took a hit. And just being able to be close to each other took a hit. And being able to be close to each other, to hold hands more often, to hug more often, and to express sort of non-sexual affection to each other is absolutely critical for us to help each other constantly feel safe within our own skin and also around other people. 
As the world reopens, Dave, do you think we're going to restore those abilities? We, we might be in a very kind of problematic time at the moment, and, and we may feel like we haven't had the ability to to be in relation with each other. Do you think, quite frankly, that the brain is quite resilient? We won't have a long-term mental impact from just a year of non-contact. Yeah, to your point, the human brain is incredibly resilient. Mm -hmm. So we have the ability, and many animals are very resilient as well, to adapt to whatever comes our way. I would say the human brain, and one of the things that makes the human brain unique, is that we have the ability to adapt to stress, not only by doing things independently that we can do for ourselves, but also through collaboration. Mm -hmm. And when we actually look at the way the brain is hardwired in terms of its structure, there are entire pieces of the cerebral cortex and the emotional nervous system that are more developed in humans than any other animals that clearly are there for this collaborative coping purpose. And so I think without a doubt, we can get back there. We can get back to using these skills and to connecting with each other more deeply again on a regular basis. And this was a problem even before COVID, um, where many people just wouldn't get hugs. And, and I know lots of people who grew up without getting hugs and affection from their families, which is very challenging because you end up seeking that love and affection from other things outside. Right. But to answer your question, I think it's absolutely the case that the mind is incredibly resilient. We have these hardwired neurological pathways in all of us. And so it's really just about practicing accessing them and tapping into them more often and making the intentional decision to prioritize tapping into these parts of our lives that restore us and that help us feel more fulfilled and more safe and connected that starts to shift the pattern. And it can. That shift can happen in any moment just by us deciding to choose to connect versus disconnect. It's wonderful to hear that there's so many ways in which being together can help us deal with stress responses, but also there's solutions that we can find from within. There's non-pharmaceutical and ancient practices that we can use to help us deal with stress. So what methods, tools, techniques, uh, what do we actually have at our disposal to consciously change our brain? So we have a lot, um, which is good. It's yeah. a really good thing. I think that the tragedy of it all is that most of us have just not been taught mm -hmm. that we have all these skills or tools in the toolbox that we can tap into. Once you start to become aware of the tools and how to use them effectively, it becomes a lot easier to adapt and recognize that our truest human strength is adaptation more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So the techniques that I use in my practice as a psychiatrist that we recommend to everyone and that I use myself are deep breathing techniques, movement that can be movement meditation like yoga, or it can be movement like just getting some amount of exercise as often as we can, trying to eat healthy and plan for having good fuel that we're putting into the engine and having healthy inputs like clean water, clean food, clean air are so critical. And we have control over that in a lot of respects. We don't necessarily always have access to those things, but if we make a decision to try to put clean stuff into this high performance vehicle that we are rather than whatever just happens to be available then all of a sudden we start to notice that we can reach a higher level of performance and a higher level of recovery because they're not separate they're really one and the same we cannot sustain peak performance without sustaining and maintaining a peak recovery practice as well and so there's some cognitive stuff that we can do just by rethinking the way that we have approached our lives. For example, balancing performance and recovery and prioritizing them equally, mm -hmm. focusing on things like breathing as often as we can, particularly when we're not stressed out, and even self-touch therapies like putting your hands on your chest, 
or rubbing the uh, inside of the palm or the inside of the outside of our ear. There's lots of other parts on the body that come from ancient Chinese medicine that help us to ground and recenter and de-escalate stress responses in the body. And of course, regular meditation and mindfulness practices, yoga, technologies like Apollo, all of these things kind of come together to create a suite of tools that we can engage in one of, or we can engage in all of them. And the more that we practice engaging with them, the better we get. And, you know, the nervous system is, is complicated, but it's not so complicated in the way that we build and create habits. It's just a practice makes perfect model. The more that we practice doing anything, good or bad, the better we get at it. Well, I was surprised to learn that the impact that these activities have, like deep breathing, uh, meditation, uh, they have some impact on the nervous system, but really they can have an impact on the heart. And it's something called HRV, heart rate variability. So uh, Dave, what is that? How does it impact stress and well-being and and how can we have a better relationship with our HRV, I guess? So HRV is an interesting biometric. It actually is a measure of the rate of change of our heartbeat over time. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit tricky to measure. There's a lot of wearables out there that measure it, but it's actually measured most accurately in a clinical, highly controlled environment with an EKG machine where you're not moving during the measurement. <laughs> because every movement, every change in your thinking, thinking about stress, for instance, or just standing up or sitting down will change your heart rate variability. Because the heart rate variability is really just the difference in timing between each beat of the heart. So normally when we think about heartbeat, we think about a measure of beats per minute. Mm -hmm. Each beat does not actually have the same amount of time in between it. It varies continuously. And the more variability between each beat has been shown now over the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, maybe more through the studies of biofeedback to correlate directly with our ability to adapt to stress in our environment. So HRV is not causal. It adjusts in response to our stress and recovery levels. So the more stressed out we are chronically, the less sleep we get, the more overwhelmed we are, the lower our heart rate variability is, which predicts poor performance under stress, increased likelihood of getting sick, decreased likelihood of recovering from illness, and also decreased recovery. And the higher our heart rate variability is, the more likely we are to perform consistently, the more likely that when stress comes, we adapt to it quickly. And then when stress is gone, we calm down quickly and the less likely we are to get sick. So this has become a really fascinating metric because up until this point, the only measures that we really had from people that were useful in this way to predict stress were like resting heart rate, which doesn't shift as frequently as heart mm -hmm. rate variability. So now we're starting to be able to look at multiple metrics at the same time, which give what's called a stress signature that helps us to understand what is going on in the body when we're experiencing all these different things we're experiencing in our day-to-day -day lives. And listening to you speak, it does certainly feel like everything psychological is to some degree uh, biological. And, and you found ways in which to, I guess, hack our biology to help deal with the sorts of demands that modern life puts on us. And, and you've developed a wearable, and that wearable is the Apollo. It's what's known as a third-generation wearable. So the obvious question is, what is the Apollo? Why is it a third-generation wearable and what does it actually do? So maybe to start, I'll give you the first two generations of wearables because uh -huh. that will give a good understanding of how we got to where we got. Generation one of wearables are all the early Fitbits and the early step trackers and activity trackers and sleep trackers that started to get popular around, I want to say about 10 years ago. Yeah. And Fitbit was one of the most mainstream. And these devices track 
numbers and then give us numbers back. And then mm-hmm. we have to interpret the numbers and then make a decision about what to do differently because of those numbers, mm-hmm. which is helpful for people who know what those numbers mean. But for people who don't know what those numbers mean, which is most people, it can cause a lot of stress. The generation two of wearables, which includes the Aura Ring, the Apple Watch, the new Fitbits, the Amazon Halo, many of the new Garmin devices, and some of these more advanced devices coming out are interesting because they not only track advanced measurements from the body, but they also give you insight. So they say, okay, we've detected that you didn't sleep so well last night. Try doing XYZ today to get better sleep tonight. Mm -hmm. Try to go to bed at this time tonight to get better recovery tonight. And based on what happened yesterday. And so it's an improvement on Gen 1, but it still requires the user to make the decision and the behavior change that's required to feel better. And those are very powerful. And they're really useful for a lot of reasons, especially tracking health over a long period of time. However, they also still cause stress to people because much of the time they require us to make the decision to change and then to put it into action. And so I worked with people with severe treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, insomnia, people who had already tried tons of treatments, had tried wearables, and just not had a lot of relief. And part of it was that when you looked at their heart rate variability, it was very clear from the literature that these people generally across the board have a low heart rate variability, which means that they're not recovered, but they're constantly perceiving threat from their environment, and they respond slower to change more resistant to change. Mm -hmm. And when we saw this in the literature and we saw these patterns, we thought, okay, well, if we look back at the techniques that help people to improve heart rate variability, like soothing touch, which is the oldest, soothing music Mm -hmm. and soothing sounds in general, self-touch, breath work, meditation, biofeedback, you start to look at all these techniques and what you realize is that when Somebody, even people who are really, really sick, start to engage in these techniques. They feel better. Even just having an empathic eye-to-eye conversation with me in the office would make people feel a hell of a lot better. It's when they leave the office that they have more problems again. And so what we're trying to do with Apollo was, was fix that problem, which is the system is not equipped to be able to send out a therapist or have a therapist in touch with every patient all the time. It just doesn't work that way. We don't have the resources to do it, nor do clients have the money to pay for it. So could we use what we know about technology and the way the nervous system functions to deliver a safety signal to the brain through a wearable that's similar to what people would get from soothing touch or breathing Mm -hmm. that reminds the brain that we're safe and that you're not in a stressful situation. And so over several years of work between 2014 and 2018, we figured out in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh that... There were very specific frequencies of sound waves that we don't hear, but we actually feel through the skin that Apollo delivers to the skin on the wrist or the ankle Mm. that basically signals to the body, just like soothing touch, that we're not under threat and that we can reappraise the situation, have a moment of pause, and as if you were taking a deep breath, take that moment to really appraise the decision points that you have in front of you and make the best choice from a position of strength rather than a position of fear or threat or vulnerability. And that is fundamentally where Apollo came from. Now we all use it, but at the time we originally developed it inspired by these these clients of mine. What you're describing there is a form of touch therapy. So how did you find out about touch therapy and how did you come to realize that it would have such a massive impact on the body? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, this is something that we as humans have known about since the, the dawn of humanity, right? <laughs> the importance of touch. We, we engage with it in so many ways in our day-to-day lives. We just don't really think about it. Uh-huh. I grew up in a family where curiosity was very much encouraged. And thanks to my parents who are also physicians and, and researchers and were a huge inspiration for me growing up. And really, you know, from a very young age, I remember always questioning everything that I was taught, which I really am grateful to them for. And when they taught me growing up that we have five physical senses, right? There's sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Mm -hmm. And that these are the fundamental physical senses that impact the way we intake information from the environment. And what I realized over the years, especially as many children do growing up, but don't necessarily think about is that as you get older, that sense of touch gets more and more neglected and in some ways more and more withheld from us as we go out into the world. And the way we use touch to convey affection to one another becomes in some ways a currency and not something that is freely available. And particularly when you're working with folks who come from a family where touch is just not something that they grew up with. For me, I started to see this pattern and started to notice it in my own life and the impact that it had when I had affectionate touch from friends or family or loved ones available. And when I didn't and how much better I felt just Mm -hmm. having that around, that was just kind of where it started. And from there, I started to think, well, if if this is impacting me this way, and I grew up with a family that it was very touch centric and hugged each other and those kinds of things. What about all the people who did not have that? You know, how are they dealing with this? So I started to just look at the neurobiological pathways of what does touch do to our brains? What does it mean when somebody gives you a massage or holds your hand or gives you a hug? Where does that signal go? And how does it make it from the skin to the spinal cord, up the brainstem, into the brain? And where does it go once it gets there? And how does that change the way we extract meaning from the world and from ourselves? Mm -hmm. And as I started to dive deeper into that, particularly in 2013, 2014, I started to realize that we know quite a bit about this area of medicine and neuroscience and that touch itself, believe it or not, which is really fascinating, touch itself actually stimulates most of the neurotransmitter pathways that we typically self-medicate to activate. Mm. So what I mean by that is that the dopamine system, the serotonin system, the norepinephrine system, the endorphin system, the endogenous opioid system, the cannabinoid system in our own bodies, the endocannabinoid system, which are all critical for pain management, emotional health and regulation, sleep management, and all of these things, energy maintenance, they are all activated very strongly by affectionate touch from a trusted other human being. Mm. Even an animal touching us can activate them in very powerful ways. And so it made me realize, especially as an addiction psychiatrist, as my primary practice, why do people continue to self-medicate? Well, a lot of them are just not getting that stimulation naturally from their own lives. And a lot of these people have a contractual relationship involving money, unfortunately, where the only way they get that affection is they pay for it. Mm -hmm. And they pay for it in some way. It's not like the affection is deserved. It's not guaranteed or promised or just part of their day-to-day lives. There's a contract that they feel they have to engage in to get that relief. Mm -hmm. And so if they're going to pay to get touched, then why wouldn't they just pay and go get cigarettes or go get you know, heroin or cocaine. To many people, it's the same when you're caught in that vicious cycle of addiction. I think for us as a society, one of the most critical points to take away from this is that we need to be teaching this to kids. 
right? When kids are young and our brains are fresh and new and still gaining an understanding of the world, that is the opportunity to teach kids about the importance of this and what we now know as the neurobiology of touch and how impactful it is to our emotional and physical health Mm. so that they can start to integrate that as a priority from a young age. And there were two recent great press articles on this. One was in Wired and one was on TED about the critical importance of touch and these neurological pathways that we're not getting activated because we're isolated. But this is amongst the first lay press that I've seen in larger journals that has really started to take on this concept. So there's been a gap Mm. in getting it through to the other side. I mean, there's an even bigger gap now because we've had COVID and we're being told that if we do touch each other, there's a likelihood that we may get sick. It it feels like touch is very much a taboo yet again because of 2020. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's why I think it was so timely that these articles came out because they really help us to understand that even though we are more isolated from each other now in many ways, prioritizing touch from each other, affection from each other, eye-to-eye contact and these kinds of things, and self-care at this particular time is more important than ever. And just because it's harder to do doesn't mean we shouldn't still prioritize it in our lives. It means that maybe we have to change plans in terms of how we access it and we need to develop and work on new strategies for feeling safe enough to have soothing touch and connection with each other. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't neglect it. Because if we neglect it, we will ultimately wind up seeking that affection, that reward, or that subjective feeling of reward from other things in our lives that are probably not as sustainable as touch is itself. Well, one of the ways I've received soothing touch during lockdown is by using my Apollo Neuro device that your team were kind enough to send me. And I'm going to be honest, initially I was cynical. The device is a very simple looking black square with a Velcro band, but I took it out of the box, strapped it to myself and selected one of the many vibrating patterns. And I personally, I've been using it for sleep and I certainly feel like I'm falling asleep quicker, but the cynic in me keeps questioning, is that placebo effect? Maybe it's just the ritual of putting it on before bed and because I believe it will help my sleep, it does. So what do you say to anyone who is initially cynical of the impacts of a small vibrating device? Ultimately, what clinical trials have been done? So we've done a lot of science, a lot of Mm -hmm. university trials on Apollo. We have four trials that are complete that are in some degree of the publication process. I think the first answer is that we were cynical too. You know, (laughs) when we, we developed this technology and first encountered it for the very first time, when we actually figured out the first vibration pattern that really changed the way we felt in a positive way was Mm. midway through 2016 in the lab with prototypes that were not anywhere near as as nice as the wearables that we have now. (laughs) And the experience that we had when we first put the vibration on our bodies was at that time, because we've been testing out so many vibration patterns and none of them have made us feel good, that it was quite dramatic. And we started testing it on lots of other people, just anecdotally, and people were responding the same way. Ultimately, we figured out that the way people respond to Apollo is very similar to the way people respond to music. So if you walk into a room and all of a sudden your favorite song comes on the radio or comes on in the environment, you're like in the zone with that song. You're not even necessarily thinking anymore about what was going on before. And you're like, yeah, this is it, right? And we notice things like that all the time. And we also turn on 
usually faster, more intense music when we're exercising or working out or doing something more, ex- more extreme. And when we're winding down or meditating or falling asleep, we put on calmer, more soothing music mm-hmm. because the rhythms of that music help our bodies to transition from one state of energy to another. And we don't think about it this way that much because we weren't taught to, but that's what's happening in the neurology of the body. And the mind and the body are intimately connected. If the mind is not doing well and it's not treated or, or addressed, then the body will start to not do well. And if the body's not doing well, the mind can get sick as well. And so understanding that there is a fundamental interconnectivity between the mind and the body, we thought, okay, if we can calm the body with these specific vibrations, whether you're under stress in the moment or you're just trying to fall asleep Mm. or trying to wake up from being really tired, if you can calm the body in the process of providing a little gentle stimulation like music, but composed for the skin instead of the ears, then could we help someone shift states from one state to another without occupying the ears? And that's ultimately what we tested in our first double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial at the University of Pittsburgh that started in 2017. I believe it wrapped in 2018. That's one of the studies that's in the publication process now, which for us was the most rigorous clinical trial type that you can engage in because we had other jobs, right? I'm I'm a practicing (laughs) physician. I work on other projects. My wife was employed in her business. We did not have to start a company. But as soon as we saw these results come back where it was very clear that healthy people like us who were undergoing a very intense stress task in the lab mm. with all of the lab grade and medical grade biometric measurement tools on them, brain waves, pupils, heart rate assessments, respiratory assessments, sweat assessments, all in tandem and subjective reports, we realized very quickly that when people received only the Apollo frequencies, it was very clear that this was resulting in not only a boost in HRV and the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, it was triggering the recovery nervous system to turn on. It was also resulting in a proportionate increase in cognitive performance. Mm. And this did not happen with the placebo or the no vibration condition. So we did that test because we were also skeptical. Most research that comes out of labs does not actually translate into the real world as useful. Mm. And it falters somewhere along the way. And for us, you know, we were basically like, if we want to actually think about devoting our lives to this, we must know, is this a real effect? And so that study was the the ultimate study that showed us that we are going down the right path and that we do have an algorithm for understanding the balance of the body and the mind. And that if we help the body feel safe, even in situations of high stress, the mind will follow. I, I love that idea, music composed for the skin. And, and if that's the case, who is the composer? I mean, how were these vibration patterns decided upon? And there's multiple different vibration patterns for everything from being uh, clear and focused to social and open and for sleep and, and renewal at night. I mean, what are some of the decision-making processes that you have to go through when you're becoming a composer for the human body? That's a really good question. So to answer the first part of the question, I compose all of the rhythms, all of the Apollo modes myself. Uh-huh. Um, you're the Beethoven of, uh, of yeah. skin vibration. All right. right. The Beethoven of the body. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. But it, it came from just a ton of research mm-hmm. into what other people had done before, what had worked to calm the body and what hadn't worked and how the receptors in our skin perceive these signals and then translate them all the way up to the emotional brain. And then what does it do afterwards? And so 
we mapped out that whole pathway. We studied the rhythms of the body. We studied the patterns of the heart and the lungs as people enter and exit from meditative states. When people who do biofeedback experience symptom relief through breathing techniques and what the rhythms of the body look like. And then we based the rhythms of Apollo on the rhythms that the body naturally gets into when it is in a calm focus state or when it's in a social and creative state or when it's in a wakeful, energized mm. state or when you're in a meditative or sleepy or winding down state. And we didn't know at first that we hit it right. We figured out a couple different patterns at first and then we said, will these work? And we did this also at the University of Pittsburgh. If we take people and give them 20 different vibrations of all different kinds and have them rate on a scale, how do you feel after 30 seconds of feeling this without any prompting, without them knowing anything about what the vibrations are supposed to do mm. or which vibrations they are? It was actually surprising to us that most people could reliably rate very similarly on the scale of how much energy impact or mood impact these different vibrations had. And after looking at the data that came back from the study, we realized, okay, most people feel when they feel these frequencies, these patterns, even after just 30 seconds, mm. most people, if asked, will report that the effect on their mood and their energy is relatively the same from these different frequencies. So then when we figured out that certain ones made people feel like crap and other ones <laughs> made people feel really good, then we eliminated all the ones that made people feel like crap. And we focused uh -huh. only on the ones that made people feel good. We tested those in the trials. And then those were the ones that tended to improve performance the best and improve the parasympathetic tone or HRV the best. And that's what we wound up focusing on. And from there, that became the basis for sort of our algorithmic discovery of how do you gradually move people from one state to another throughout the seven different modes of Apollo? Yeah. So what you're telling me is somewhere in the lab hidden away are the secret dark patterns that could be used to cause people distress. But it's so fascinating to hear that these vibrations work for a multitude of individuals because we often hear that every brain and every body is different. Is is there an ultimate goal that one day you can start personalizing these vibration patterns for different sorts of people? So I think the goal is to help as many people as possible. Mm, Every okay. iteration of these waveforms has contributed to another level of effect on the population. So when we first started, mm. we were hitting like 80% of people. When we made the next iteration after that first study, we hit closer to 90% of people. Wow. Now with the current wearable as it is, we're hitting about 95% of people when they use it the way that we ins instruct them on how to use it, that they're getting consistent results. That still leaves somewhere between 5 and 10% of people who are either having different experiences as a result of the Apollo vibrations, or they're not getting the intended benefit when using the Apollo vibrations. And so for those people... We are constantly learning from our users and iterating on the vibration patterns to try to make them more universally acceptable. Down the road, at some point, customization, personalization will hopefully be a part of it. Mm. It turns out that's an incredible amount of work. And we originally <laughs> did set out to do that, but it was much more challenging than we had hoped, which is why very, very few companies have really been able to take that level of personalization on. But that being said, it is possible. It's just going to require time. And, and I think most importantly, it's going to require an improvement on even the advanced technology we have today is still not miniature enough to be able to allow us to do that customization in a wearable this size in real time. So as time goes on, as the technology gets better, you know, we do anticipate 
just becoming more and more personal to the individual. I mean, that's the great thing about having a multitude of devices on users. You can use your user base as a scientific study group. And I know you've been working with with some of your users who wear Aura rings, for example, and, and getting that feedback and, and understanding those feedback loops between what Apollo is doing and how that represents itself in the data from other wearable devices, those other generation wearable devices that only track and monitor data. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes Apollo really interesting, especially to me as a scientist, because I don't I don't just want to put something out there and hope it works. I want feedback. I want to know how is this working for you subjectively in your own mind and how is it working for you physically? Because if I can see that, then we can gain an incredible amount of learnings from that and then iterate more over time to make a better product. Apollo is interesting because being one of the first of this third generation of wearables that is targeting the body first, Mm. and then you do something different because you feel better. Whereas we're not giving you instructions and saying, do X, Y, Z to feel better. We're helping calm the body so that you feel in a state where you're more likely and more able to feel safe to make that change that's needed, which is called a bottom-up approach because we're not telling you to do it. That's a top-down approach, which only works at best 50% of the time, even when it's your doctor telling you what to do, which is crazy. But the bottom-up approach is really powerful and stimulating the body first to calm the body does in fact result in a relatively profound impact on calming and centering the mind. And so working with companies or our users who have lots of different wearable devices like Aura Ring, it's been very exciting. And I have my Aura Ring on too as well. It's very exciting to be able to evaluate not the daily changes, the daily changes or the moment to moment changes we evaluate in the lab and we know that we can get changes in the moment. What's really fascinating is how do people change over time? Mm -hmm. And what is the usage pattern of Apollo that results in the most likely improvements where you see reduced stress burden on the body, improved HRV, decreased resting heart rate, decreased heart rate throughout the day, improved deep sleep, REM sleep, which are really the signals that the body's feeling safer because being able to reduce resting heart rate and improve HRV and improve deep sleep is actually one of the best metrics that we can use to show that people are recovering more effectively more of the time. The wearing of the Apollo device, does it need to be durational? Does it need to be something that you use every single day? I know the app encourages you to engage in streaks, to use it multiple times across many points of the day. Is the device always required? Or could it get to the point whereby, thanks to the neuroplasticity of the brain, that you use the device for a certain number of months or maybe years, and eventually you won't need the vibration anymore. You'll be in a state of awareness of your body whereby the outcome or effect you wanted is one that you can trigger quote unquote naturally. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. That's a common thought around technologies like this. Mm. As an addiction psychiatrist, we really worked hard to make non-addictive technology that serves us rather than making technology that we serve, which is another cause of stress in our day-to-day lives. So the idea was, and the hope was from the beginning that if we And this is based on the psychological theory of cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure, Mm -hmm. which is the leading therapy technique for treating PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the way that works is that you help somebody understand the connection between their behaviors, their thoughts, and their feelings in a sort of triangle Mm -hmm. and how those are all connected. And that if we have experienced something that isn't actually threatening, but we experience it in a threatening environment, that it can become 
threatening mm. to us in meeting. And so having a safety trigger around or a safety presence like a therapist in the cognitive behavioral therapy model is to remind you that when you're exposed to something that sets off your stress response, that you're actually not under threat. You can reappraise the response, take a few deep breaths, mm. and then effectively extinguish the fear response to that thing. This is called classical conditioning or extinction, which is something that has existed since way back in cognitive neuroscience uh, with, with Skinner and, and Pavlov's dog and all of these different things going way back into early behavioralism. So we've known about these mechanisms for a long time. And what we see to answer your question is Apollo is doing just that. And so as people use it, when they start using it, they will often start using it multiple times a day, every day, hmm. or almost every day. And that's where people tend to get the best results, especially in the short term. Right. However, as people use it, and it looks like over the three to six month period, the use starts to become more intentional and less consistent, mm. but still being used, just used very specifically for specific goals. And the use pattern starts to taper off because people feel less afraid, less threatened or triggered by things around them that might have otherwise made them feel threatened or unsafe in their day-to-day. -day. Public speaking is the best example, I think, here of socializing when you're uncomfortable socializing. Great examples because they're very similar things where you get up on stage, you're expected to give a conversation. I'm a perfect example. So I used to sweat a lot when I would get up on stage and have like racing thoughts and tap my feet. And I was spending a lot of time thinking about what other people were thinking about me while I was talking which yeah. is never useful while you're doing a public speaking activity. <laughs> or a podcast. Yeah. Or a podcast or an interview or anything like that, or, or socializing for uh -huh. that matter, right? And so I started to realize using Apollo, and this is going back to our early prototypes, so 2017, 2018, I started to use Apollo during my public speaking. And I realized, similar to many other people who have done this now, that I don't have anything to worry about when I'm on stage. When I'm on stage, mm -hmm. if my body's calm because of Apollo, then part of it is sending a signal to my brain that subconsciously, it's even beneath awareness, that is interpreted by my brain as, if I have the time to pay attention to this gentle, soothing touch right now, just like a deep breath or someone holding your hand on a bad day, then I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. I must be <laughs> physically safe. And then that led me to the active conscious thought of, People are not here to ridicule me. They're here listening to me to hear what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And if I prepared adequately and know and have confidence myself in what I have to say, then I have nothing to worry about about what these people are thinking about. I can worry about that after the talk, not during. Yeah. Right. And so just feeling present and safe physically and calming my body in those environments that were stressful to me resulted in the natural downstream thought process that helped me to navigate those experiences now. And now I will sometimes use Apollo when I'm public speaking, but I certainly don't need it. I can do mm. it just fine without it. And it's great to be able to feel that comfortable in something that used to make me feel so uncomfortable. That's fascinating to hear because the only time the Apollo caused me stress was when I realised just before bed that I'd forgotten to charge it. And I was more stressed about losing my streak than about the impact not wearing it would have on my sleep. But listening to you speak about this new generation of wearables, I remember when I first received the device, I was looking for the sensor and I was surprised that it wasn't capturing data and capturing metrics. But I guess that's kind of the 
point, isn't it? The, the wearable 1.0 folk, the quantified self-communities, they became so obsessed with their metrics that it almost caused its own stress response. But there is something lovely about not having to fixate about the data. It's really just about the feedback loop, knowing the device is doing something, not that the device is telling us something. That's exactly right. And the idea that data can be really valuable mm. at the same time, if we're spending a ton of time fixating on that data and it starts to worry us or starts to frustrate us or, or make us feel uncomfortable or overwhelmed, yeah. you're just adding more fuel to the fire, the stress fire, right? We're just putting more on when we already have so much to pay attention to by taking us out of the present to look at what our data trends have been like in the past. Yeah. And whether you're a follower of Eastern traditions or tribal medicine traditions or Western medicine traditions, all of these traditions are focused on learning from our mistakes in the past mm. and at the same time, maintaining as much of our consciousness in the present as possible because the present moment is our source of power. It's the only place in our lives where we make decisions and we change the future. Mm. We can't change the past. We can only change our perception of it to learn from it. And we are certainly are terrible at predicting the future. <laughs> However, we can change the future to the future that we want by bringing as much of our consciousness to the present mm -hmm. as possible. So by making the data part of Apollo optional, which in this particular point, it's really just about helping encourage people to use it in the way that we want them to, which is going to improve over time. Mm -hmm. The version you, you and, and probably many of your guests are using is the first generation of Apollo. Um, so there's lots of exciting software and hardware improvements to come. But the goal is really to help you be as present mm. in the moment as possible, which is where our bodies are all the time, basically. Our minds can be anywhere, past, present, future, some other planet, someone else's mind, but our bodies are always present. And so by centering the mind back into the body, which is what deep breathing does, what soothing touch does, what yoga and meditation do, or what Apollo does... What we're doing is we're restoring power back to our mm. own attention and our ability to make choices in our lives. In, in a funny sort of way, it does remind me of Vipassana meditation. You, you have to be equanimous about your experience, not act with craving or aversion to certain outcomes, but just be equanimous. Let the feeling wash over you. And of course, part of the large bit of training around Vipassana meditation is being aware that we're not just embodied beings, but we're also vibration. So it just, it's very fitting that the device that you've created is one that prioritizes the touch feeling and the idea of vibration. But that does raise an interesting question about how much we should rely on technology to give us back the wellness that in modern society, it feels like technology has taken away. Technological solutions for deeper problems of stress are, are highly problematic and wellness, especially in the US and in, in Europe, it's largely marketed as an efficiency tool. And I guess that first hit me when I went on my own Vipassana meditation retreat and on the last day you're allowed to talk to people. And one of the lads who'd come along to this Vipassana meditation retreat, he Australian guy, turns around to me and goes, the only reason I've signed up to this mate is because I'm an oil trader and uh, where the old traders, the old uh, financial traders on Wall Street, they used to take cocaine, now they're all doing meditation to completely calm their minds so that they can make the trade at exactly the right calmed moment. And I was going, God, that's 
terrible <laughs> because essentially you're using meditation as a tool to increase productivity. And, and that is the funny line that we walk, especially when we see businesses buying their employees subscription models to meditation apps. You do have to question whether that's for the good of the employee or for the employee to be more effective, more productive workers. So using this technology sometimes doesn't actually fix the core problem, the core reason for the stress in the first place. It's just a band-aid. So how do we deal with that, I guess, from a societal level, less than a technological level, Dave? I think it comes back to the focus of intentionality, mm. right? So we, we talk about this a lot in the meditation world or, and in the psychological world, but it's not necessarily something that we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis as regular human beings. Yep. And the idea that everything that we do is either training us to become better at something or worse at something. And when we choose to become better at something, let's hope that we have spent enough time and thoughtfulness intending for that thing to be something that is constructive and helps us grow. Yeah. And that reminds us, I think, similar to the practice of meditation, that the entire purpose of these practices is to remind us that we have the ability to heal ourselves. Mm -hmm. The biggest fault of Western medicine, as great as it is for treating emergency situations for many of the serious life-threatening things that Western medicine is capable of fixing, as great as it is for all those things, it, especially in mental health, has resulted in what we call externalizing the healing, yep. the healing mechanism. And that is extremely dangerous. Even Hippocrates talked about that going back thousands of years to the origins of Western medicine. And he said, and I'm going to botch this, but he said something to the effect of that food, water, exercise, these are our medicines. And the medicine comes from within us. We are the healers of our own selves. And the goal of the healer, the external healer, like me as a psychiatrist or a shaman or uh, another, any other medical practitioner, is to help guide us to be on the right track and empower our, what we call our inner healer or our intuition or our inner healing intelligence to be able to take the wheel on its own and not rely on the healer, not rely on the medicine, not rely on the medical system to hold our hand through the process. Because that, as we know from looking at the financial burden of health in the Western world, it's completely unsustainable. Yep. There's absolutely no way that we can handhold every single person through their healing journey. However, if we start to recognize and accept, fundamentally accept that we all have the ability to heal ourselves deep down that we're all born with, it's hardwired into our nervous systems and we teach people to do it, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier for people to take control of their own process and feel like they're actually making a difference in their own lives and the lives of the people around them. When we do the opposite, we rely on medicine or we rely on any tool, technology, video games, whatever, social stuff, whatever it is, only in exclusion, then we externalize the healer to something outside of us, believing that we need that to get better, to feel better, to achieve a certain state of mind, yeah. which is absolutely not the case. So it's really about going back to that old way of thinking and that way is embodied by the traditions of Eastern, Western, and tribal medicine alike. It's just that we've kind of lost sight of that because of the power and the influence that medicines and drugs have had on our culture, particularly in the West. But it's a very interesting challenge. Mm. And the sooner that we can, and you know, I use these techniques in my practice. We use it particularly with psychedelic psychotherapy, with MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. There are ways that we could, we do this without 
medicine at all. And just restoring that understanding and reminding people that we have the ability to heal ourselves is the most critical part of that process that really sets things on its course. Yeah, there's other agendas there. It does feel like, especially the US, it does sick care rather than health care. Instead of increasing the resilience of the human, it's making sure that the human is reliant on opioids or drugs or the system of medication, which is a you know billions and billion dollar industry. And in that sort of way, do you think there is some form of deliberate negative PR against alternative medicine? Because if it truly does work, then it's a massive threat to something like Big Pharma, isn't it? Is it a massive threat? Massive might be the only word I disagree with <laughs> because the Big Pharma is so well established <laughs> that even if we were to take a 50% chunk out of those who are prescribed chronic prescriptions Mm -hmm. by helping those people do the self-empowering techniques and the touch techniques and restoring a sense of control of their healing process and agency back to them so that they're no longer relying on drugs, these companies would still be making ridiculous amounts of money. Mm -hmm. There is no shortage of ill people out there who need medicine at some point in their lives. I think... To your other point, though, there is absolutely a difficult relationship and an adverse or opposing agenda between Mm -hmm. those of us who advocate for more natural, holistic, patient-driven, client-driven healing practices versus only relying on medicine. And we see this because, believe it or not, much of the Western medical education in terms of the way that we as doctors were taught and PAs and, and nurse practitioners and other people who are prescribers in America actually have a lot of their education funded and sponsored by drug companies. Mm. That cannot be ignored. We're not getting a lot of education about other techniques because we're getting an education that in a lot of ways has a conflict of interest because of who's contributing financially to it. And at the same time, there's another piece of this that's a little more complicated, which is that the advent of evidence-based medicine, Mm. right? So evidence-based medicine, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a very important thing to understand because the basics of evidence-based medicine is that we have evidence, uh, either preponderance of anecdotal evidence or clinical trial evidence to support the tools being used in a very specific way. And what's happened is the anecdotal part of that evidence has kind of fallen away, which was a lot of the history of the way we practice medicine as both an art and a science, not just a science, which uh, makes it a lot warmer when there's a little art and humanity (laughs) involved, and started to get to this very reductionist viewpoint where you know, we're taught as physicians that if, if this intervention or any intervention does not go through and successfully pass a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, crossover, extremely high level of rigor clinical trial, that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And that is a fallacy, unfortunately, that has been accepted at large. Even in the general population, this is a fallacy that's been accepted at large by individuals because they don't understand what the issues are. And the issues are that things do work that are very challenging to study in the double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled model. And it turns out that most of the natural techniques like acupuncture, acupressure massage, things of that nature, Eastern medicine, and then plant medicine techniques that use whole plants as a tool to treat symptoms or to treat illness are very, very difficult to study in the double-blind, randomized, Mm placebo-controlled model. 
we've gotten to a point where we can start to study psychological techniques in that model. But a lot of the other stuff that I just mentioned is still very challenging to this day to study in that model. Will that change now that we're doing a lot more studies remotely in the real world with individuals in the comfort of their homes? I think it will. At the same time, the reason why we haven't had a lot of that level of evidence for these practices is because we haven't been able to do those studies well to date. And there's a lot of barriers to those studies. They're extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about spending five to $10 million on development of a clinical trials protocol and your intervention, like a certain kind of massage is not patentable, who's going to fund that? Mm-hmm. Right? You're going to have to get the funding the way that Rick Doblin has done with MAPS, which is coming all from independent donors, which has taken him 35 years. And it's going to take another several years probably to wrap up that funding to make MDMA a medicine because it is not patentable anymore. And so there is a financial interest in the development of drugs that does make it complicated to get the best treatments out there. There, there is absolutely a conflict of interest there. Yeah, and, and that's why And your other interest is, as you tease there, psychedelics. I mean, it feels like psychedelics, I mean, it's been getting a bad rap since Timothy Leary in the 60s, but in actual fact, the more we look into it, the more we study it, the work of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, the more we start to understand that they actually do have an affect. Psychedelics, especially in therapy, when they're assisted, and assisted is the important word there, they're highly effective in helping people overcome certain traumas or certain illnesses of the mind. So could you tell me a little bit more, Dave, about your interest in psychedelics and where you think that realm of therapies could potentially go? Well, it's already going. Uh, <laughs> That's a good it's, thing. It's well on its, it's, yeah, it's, it's well on We're its already way. on the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think my interest really comes from just trying to figure out what works, yeah. right? We have this epidemic of depression, an epidemic of post-traumatic stress disorder, chronic pain, where over 50% of people diagnosed with these conditions are not getting better mm. to the point where they can get on with their lives and stop taking some of the drugs or doing the therapy, they don't get to the point of no longer being reliant on the medical system. So they're still heavily symptomatic, even after going through the gold standard Western treatments that are recommended. And this is a huge problem. This is a really bad statistic for the field of mental health when half or over half of our clients in any given diagnostic category are not getting better with two or more gold standard treatments. It's not a good number. And so for me... You know, I always enjoyed hard problems and it was always about if these are the numbers that are really coming back in epidemiological study after study, perhaps we're not looking at this right, right? Perhaps we need a different perspective on the way we're looking at these illnesses that are seemingly so hard to treat. And so psychedelic medicines became really interesting because Rick Doblin and many others, Rick Doblin being the executive director and founder of MAPS, and many other psychedelic psychiatrists from way back, Dr. Phil Wilson, Dr. Mike and Annie Mithoffer, Mm. Dr. Stan Groff, they all found from when psychedelic medicines like MDMA and psilocybin and LSD were legal, that they used them to accelerate rapidly the process of psychotherapy Mm. and healing in psychotherapy for people who had these what we call treatment-resistant conditions. And the results were really, really good. So even though when the medicines were banned in the 70s and 80s, Rick Doblin said, I know from what I've seen and experienced with his colleagues that MDMA can be an incredible tool for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans of war. And so he went through the long journey 
from 1985 to, to present day of getting MDMA legally in FDA clinical trials to make it available to people with PTSD, not just veterans. Mm -hmm. And the results of those trials, which are now in phase three with us, ideally, if everything continues to go according to plan, which seems to be the case, that MDMA will be legal for us to use in office with assisted therapy in 2023. Wow. And psilocybin will also be legal around that time, which is very exciting. And the reason why that's happening and why the FDA is getting on board is, for one, because there is an epidemic of mental illness that we're not dealing with optimally. And number two is because psychedelic medicines like MDMA have shown just some of the most incredible breakthrough results that we've seen in mental health in the history of the field. Mm -hmm. So I say that not as an overstatement, but actually as something that we really need to take to heart. And when we think about the results people are getting with MDMA, what we're seeing in the trials is that people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that have had this disorder for over 17 years on average without any relief from gold standard treatments, over 50% of them are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD wow. just after three doses of MDMA and 12 weeks of psychotherapy, which is an incredible breakthrough in and of itself. But the question is, does the effect stick, mm. right? So now we look back a year later and we see that, in fact, not only does it stick, it actually gets better. At one year out after the treatment, after that 12 weeks and just three doses of medicine, not daily dosing of medicine, no continued therapy, 67% of people who went through that treatment are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Mm -hmm. And the only logical conclusion or one of the primary logical conclusions that we can draw from that is that with just three treatments of MDMA in the therapeutic setting with 12 weeks of supportive therapy, we're actually teaching these individuals how to heal themselves again. Because then they leave the treatment and they continue on the healing process on their own and they know what to do. They're empowered to engage in that healing process on their own. It doesn't work for everyone, but yeah. no treatment works for everyone, right? But this is truly, and psilocybin's around the corner for depression as well with similar results that we're seeing that this is the most promising treatment on the forefront that we've ever had mm. for mental illness that doesn't require every day or multiple times a day dosing. Well, it seems wild that there's still a taboo around it. And I guess, again, that might just be because now big farmers lost a 17-year-long customer of their SSRI drug. You know, that guy, oh, now he's cured in 12 weeks. Ah, we've, we've just lost a customer. And because these aren't once-a-day meds, there's no money in this idea of a pill that you take once or twice a day. And it does feel, and I might be wrong, but it does feel like there's a large incentive to start to make psychoactive drugs similar to prescription-based drugs, the push towards using these things as if they were once-a-day meds. And we're beginning to see the gold rush and the excitement around uh, psychopharmaceuticals or psychoceuticals, whatever you want to call them. And uh, corporations are getting involved largely with the idea that they can make synthetic versions of psychedelic drugs that help people and they can microdose for long periods of time. But the question is, is the healing not in the chemical that gives you a certain experience is the healing in the actual spiritual experience of the drug. If you rip all the 
good chemicals but don't get the trip out of the drug, are you depriving your patient of the thing that may have actually helped them? As Terence McKenna used to say, if you're not doing a heroic dose, then you're not doing a dose. So microdosing is not going to help anybody. That's a really great question. It's a complicated question yep. because the best answer I can give you is we don't really know yet. Yep. We haven't had enough studies to say that one dosing strategy is definitively better than the other, mm. except for the studies that I mentioned with psilocybin at Hopkins and the MAPS MDMA trials. You know, there's a very limited amount of recent high level of rigor publications that show this, although there is more coming, which is very exciting. I think that the challenge is in what we were talking about earlier, which is empowering the individual as the intention of the healing experience mm. to be able to take on the healing journey on their own and to really step into that role willingly, voluntarily, with radical self-acceptance and radical non-judgment. Yep. And that is something that if you don't have a guide or a therapist with you who's well-trained to guide you through your psychedelic experience with powerful medicine like MDMA or psilocybin, you may not get to that on the other side. And it's the same with microdosing. You may also not get to it on the other side if you don't have that guidance around your microdosing protocol. But microdosing can be very effective in people. Anecdotally, we see lots of reported really great benefits, but we're not necessarily going to see the long-term results that we see with MDMA in the MAPS trial where people are getting even better after the treatment has ended. Mm. If we were going to lock in on what a holy grail of psychiatry could be, as psychiatrists, the holy grail is not to have to dose people every day because people hate taking everyday dosing of medicine. Yep. Oh, no one likes it. And I think for a large reason is that it externalizes the healing process. It subjectively makes you feel that I need this thing from outside of myself to make me feel better. Yep. And if I don't take it, I'll relapse, right? And that's not actually the truth. The truth is that we all need our own healing intelligence, our own inner healer to be nourished and trusted to walk the path and to engage in the process on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. If we're not bought into that process, it doesn't matter how many drugs you throw at it. Mm. It's not going to get better in the way that we're seeing with these peak doses of medicine in these trials we're talking about. It does feel like healing really is less of a scientific experience and really more of a spiritual experience. Connecting with those immutable aspects of what it means to be human can unlock, as you were saying earlier in this conversation, unlock our innate ability to find ways in which to heal ourselves. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, a lot of people don't have ready and easy access to psychedelics, but they do have ready and easy access to psychedelic styles of being or ways of being. And psychedelic in the original sense of the word, the mind manifesting ways of being. And and some of those are through things as simple as meditation. So in what way, Dave, is is meditation psychedelic? And can you tell me a little bit about your own meditative practice and how that informs the way in which you navigate the world? Yes, I can tell you about that. (laughs) I think that meditation can absolutely be psychedelic in the way that you described it. Uh I think that, you know, the other way to think about the word psychedelic is not just mind manifesting, which can be a little bit hard to grasp for some people, Mm. but psyche means mind and delos means to show. So in a lot of ways, what we're doing when we enter into a psychedelic state, whether it's drug facilitated or medicine facilitated, or it's through meditation or breathing or yoga or assisted by a a tool like Apollo, Mm. 
is we're sh- giving ourselves an opportunity to look within ourselves, to see things that are typically stored in what Freud called our subconscious or unconscious, but what is actually really just the stuff that's stored beneath our awareness. Mm. That is purposefully stored beneath our awareness because if we were aware of it all the time, it would be quite distracting <laughs> and we would, it would be very hard to function. When we engage intentionally in activities, whether they're medicines like drug facilitated like MDMA or whether they are internally facilitated or technologically facilitated like Apollo or meditation, we have the ability to access the same states of mind, yeah. the same states of being. It's just that the tools help to catalyze or speed up a natural reaction that's going on in the body. And to add on to something you said earlier about the spiritual connection, the spiritual connection cannot be denied. The denial of it is a certain path towards suffering. Mm. At the same time, it's not the only piece of the puzzle. It's more about taking a step back and recognizing that we are physical, emotional, mental, spiritual beings. We are whole in many more ways than we think we might realize. And if we deny any one or multiple parts of ourselves, then we are literally and systematically putting up the very roadblocks that are preventing us from achieving our fullest potential. You know, it's always interesting to speak with a scientist who has a connection to the spiritual aspects of reality. And it would be unfair of me to have a neuroscientist on this podcast without asking you for your best guess of what you think consciousness is. So Dave, is it just an emergent property of matter created by that three pounds of grey gloop enclosed in our skull? Or is it something out there that we tune into? I love the hard questions. So (laughs) I think that there's a lot of different ways to describe consciousness. Mm. I think when we try to define it, and I'm going to focus linguistically here for a Uh sec because I think it's really important. When we try to define something that's as big as consciousness, let alone anything else, we are attributing a box to that thing Mm. and saying, this must fall within this definition at the exclusion of other possible definitions or descriptions. Uh And I want to say that because ultimately what we're doing in our day-to-day lives, in everything we do, is we are describing consciousness. We are, when we create, when we make words about things we feel, we are in the act of describing consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that description is not singular. It's actually unique in a lot of ways to each of us. So I can give you my description of consciousness. Which some people might find controversial. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this for what it's worth. And also, I admit that my own description and understanding of consciousness is constantly evolving. So it's not set in stone or fixed by any means. So, with that said, I think that the easiest way to understand consciousness is as a participant in the whole, that that is consciousness. Consciousness is the ability for any one piece of the whole to participate in the whole. Mm. And so when we think about consciousness in that way, it is an ability to intake information from everything that's going on around us. This could be from the five senses. It can be from things we feel. It can be from things that we feel in our bodies that maybe aren't necessarily part of those five senses that are emotional or mental or spiritual that we can't necessarily even put words to. But it's being able to take that information in in a sensory sort of way and then react to it in any way. And when we think about it in that way, almost every single thing on the earth that has DNA Mm. 
is actually conscious. It's making decisions on a daily moment-to-moment basis about survival and about what's going to contribute to its continuation in this world that we live in or what is going to potentially contribute to its extinction from the world that we live in. And every animal, even every bacteria and every fungus and every plant makes these decisions on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. So to me, I think that is the most important way to think about consciousness because it opens up our eyes to the idea, which is not a Cartesian idea. It's not the idea of the cogito ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. It's more of an idea of, I am, therefore I am. (laughs) right? Or I love, therefore I am, which might be an extension of that. And the idea that I participate, therefore I am part of the whole. And that we cannot live without the whole. Mm. And the whole can certainly live without us, but we play a critical role in the maintenance or the destruction of said whole. And so it's up to us to take full advantage of our consciousness to accept that responsibility And to make the decision to either say, okay, I believe that I'm the only conscious thing out there, so I'm going to treat everything else as lesser than me and and miss all of the incoming signals from everything else out there that might be trying to send me information that I can make sense of to live my life better, to overcome challenge better, to grow and become more connected to my environment and my surroundings. Or I can take the other approach, which Jeremy Narby talks about in his book, a wonderful book called Intelligence in Nature. Um, which is accepting the thing that we're experiencing itself and nature itself as something of equal intelligence to us. And when we accept that it's possible even that nature could be equally intelligent to us, potentially even more so, and that we are then fundamentally part of it, it allows for, as you said, like an equanimous communication, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the judgmental barriers of I'm better than thou, so I don't need to listen to you kind of go out the window and we bring ourselves back into a present moment where we could say, oh, wait, maybe these signals have value. Let's interpret them first, reserve judgment, and then come back to them later mm-hmm. and see what they actually mean. I know that was a little bit lengthy of an answer, but it was a very challenging question you put out there. <laughs> well, I couldn't resist. I mean, for anybody who may have listened to our, our conversation, what can they do today to have a better relationship with their brain, by extension, their consciousness, and by further extension, other consciousnesses? I think that there's a couple different ways. Uh I think the first thing, which is the simplest way to think about it, is that in every moment of our lives, there exists fear and love. And they exist not only mapped in our brains, but also in the world around us, in our thoughts, in our feelings. They exist everywhere. What we have, what could be considered free will, is the ability to choose what we let into our consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? So what makes humans really fascinating to me is that unlike many other animals, at least from our understanding, we actually possess the unique ability to say, I choose to think about love and gratitude and forgiveness and self-compassion. And these are some of the four pillars of Buddhism and traditional Shipibo tribal medicine from South America that are guides that help us. They're like emotional skill sets. They're emotional tools that we can tap into at any time. And when we're starting to feel threatened or starting to feel challenged or starting to feel overwhelmed, by taking a step back and saying, 
I'm actually grateful for this challenge、mm. because this is something that's going to help me grow and become stronger and explore what I can be and and the, how good I can be as a human being, how much of a human being I can be. Then all of a sudden, the approach to challenge shifts dramatically. Right? We actually welcome it rather than shunning it. It's that process, which is mostly a cognitive process. That is really critical for setting the stage for how we grow in our lives. Those of us who reject or resist challenge ultimately don't develop that many skills because we didn't go through the process of developing them. The whole process of overcoming challenge is so that we can accumulate skills and grow. Which actually, I would say, of all of the things that teach us that growing up in my generation, RPG video games are the <laughs> most accurate representation of that phenomenon.、Uh -huh. It's that you. Are forced to beat the boss as painful as it might be, as many times as you might feel like you can't do it, and you won't beat that boss. And now you have new skills and you have experience points. Right? We have that too. It's just that you can't see them on a screen, but they're still there. Well, on that note, I appreciate this challenging and mind-expanding conversation, and I feel like I've certainly learned how to become more aware of some of those innate abilities that we have as human. Being so, Dave, I just want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. It's my pleasure, Luke. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to Dave for showing us a more holistic way to combat stress. You can find out more by visiting apolloneuro.com. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode, or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.